0: episode of Creation and Conflict podcast, where our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation. This episode is going to be a really, really fun interview that I had with screenwriter and author Brian Godawa about the three-tiered universe and the biblical cosmology and cosmic geography all through the Bible. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time introducing this because I want to get right into the podcast. So. Welcome, Brian Gadawa. Howdy, howdy. I always like to start the podcast off with a quote, either a quote from an early church father or a quote from scripture. And I can't think of a better quote to start this podcast off with than Philippians 2 9 to 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Christ bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I was looking at that verse yesterday and something struck me not just because it clearly delineates the three-tiered cosmology but the reference to knees and tongues seems to be a clear reference to physical beings. And I'm sure we can get into that. And we'll get into a lot more of that. But before we get into all of that, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this topic and how many different books you've written and the different series and what they're about. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and expose the audience to that if they're not familiar with that. Well, okay. So jumping right
1: in, I you know my background is actually I'm I'm a Hollywood screenwriter and I wrote the movie To End All Wars, you know, years ago. And I, I've still been writing uh, movies, not as much. But what happened was, oh, I'd say about nine years, nine or so years ago now. It's it's been a while. I uh, I came up with a great idea to write a screenplay about a movie based on a Bible story because Bible stories were kind of. And fantasy and Bible stories were kind of becoming a little bit more considered in in Hollywood. So I thought, well, there's one that that they haven't done, that I found some fascinating, bizarre information on, and that was the story of Noah. And I so I wrote this movie about Noah, called it Noah Primeval, and and uh, it was really cool because I discovered things that I had not learned before like giants and the watchers and stuff. And it was just so fascinating. I thought surely this would be perfect for a movie and for Hollywood as well, as well as Christians or religious believers, shall we say. And, but then I've discovered shortly after I wrote the script that Darren Aronofsky was making his Noah movie. And I thought, Oh, well, he's going to beat me to the punch. Cause he's got, you know, he's got connections and all that. I, I didn't really have much. And so I thought, well, how can I get my story out in a way that People won't think I copied off of him because like, what if he has similar material that I found, right? Well, I since found out that he really didn't. He, his his was very different from mine and mine was definitely more based on a, a biblical approach and his was based on a environmentalist parable turning the Bible story into something that's worshiping the earth. It's sort of like the opposite in a very real way. But nevertheless, at the time I didn't know that. I thought, well, so if I, get, if I write it into a novel, my novel will be out and at least I can, mine was out first and I can say, okay. I didn't take anything from him because my story was out first. Lo and behold, like I said, his movie wasn't really like mine, but it also launched me on this uh, writing journey because uh, the book was selling so well. And this is the time when Amazon was just, you know, sort of just getting going with self-published books and stuff. And I was doing so well that I realized, you know what, there's much more to this story than, than I had anticipated. And I could go throughout the whole Bible and find various stories where there are giants or watchers. And that this wasn't just a strange anomaly, but that that. It was it was something that's embedded in the whole storyline, and so that's what launched me on writing my novels, Chronicles of the Nephilim, which are now eight novels, and then I have a sequel to that called Chronicles of the Apocalypse, that's four novels, and now I'm working on Chronicles of the Watchers, uh, which I don't know how many they're going to be there, but my first novel is Jezebel, and that's going to be coming out um, you know in a couple months. Anyway, the short of it is that part and parcel of that whole paradigm of realizing this different story thread, which. You know, we maybe I think you you mentioned we could talk on a different episode or so in terms of the giants and stuff. But part and parcel of that was also learning to understand and read the Bible within its ancient Near Eastern context. And I think that that was something that transformed my understanding of the Bible, because I think what I learned was that so often we read the Bible in English. We don't realize that if we just read it and we don't study the backgrounds to it and what it meant to those people in that time period, it is very easily misinterpreted and misunderstood, and we project our own worldview onto the text. So, for instance, you know, when we read Genesis 1... You know, it's what the debate, you know, has always been, you know, is it literal days or not? Is it seven literal days? And is the is the age of the earth old or is it, uh, you know, 10,000 years and and all these debates. And what I started to learn was that really most of those debates are completely null and void in terms of the ancient worldview. They have nothing to do with the context of creation stories as they were understood in the ancient Hebrew world and in the ancient Near Eastern culture. In other words, you know, just as one is not at all about science, I started to realize, and it really doesn't have anything to do with that, and so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have anything to say about evolution. It doesn't have anything to say about the early age of the Earth or the old age of the Earth. It doesn't have anything to say about that because it's not talking about that. That's not the way they told stories. And part of the paradigm also included this notion of what I might call the Mesopotamian cosmology, you know, or you could just say maybe the ancient Near Eastern cosmology. It's not a single unified idea, you know, like like quantum physics or something or Einsteinian. But it, it's definitely, it's images, pictures, concepts that overlap. Some contradict each other. But the point is, is and scholars have known this for for a long time, but I think now Bible believers are starting to wake up and realize this really is there. It's really in there in the text. And the notion was that in the ancient world, inc- the uh, Jews, including their ancient Near Eastern neighbors, they all had different religious beliefs, for sure, and they all had different ideas of how those worked and interacted with the cosmic universe or whatever. But right. but there was a kind of a pattern of commonalities of which included this notion that the Earth is basically a flat disk. And
0: Well, before we get into that, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, when you started this nine years ago, it was really before the popularity of some of the more popular books now, like some of the things that John Walton has put out. Yes. So where did you get the information on the ancient worldview as it related to cosmology prior to some of these more popular works that people are familiar with today?
1: That's a that's a good question. Actually I was introduced to it through
0: BioLogos
1: and which is interesting because BioLogos is a Christian organization of Christians who believe in evolution. Now I do not believe in evolution and I still don't but they are my brothers and they're smart scientists. And I got to know one of the—Daryl Falk, who's one of the lead, lead guys in there. Right. And through another, another friend of mine who is a Christian evolutionist, and he was challenging me on the ideas and stuff. And in the course of that, I read some of their material, and it opened a doorway to me to, to discover not the scientific arguments, but more dealing with the scriptural arguments. So the short of it was was that they were the ones that helped me to start to see uh, what we call uh, scientific concordism, which, which is the belief that the Bible— should line up with science and the problem with that of course is science is always changing and so if science is always changing then your understanding of the bible is going to be always changing and it's a very dangerous thing to try to do that is my point and and so their arguments though they were arguing they had two sides of the argument one was they firmly believed in evolution i i didn't accept those beliefs but the other side was the scripture and looking at the scripture in a different way and i i started to realize that they really are onto something and And so it was their writings that sort of challenged me to start to see the picture, the cosmology of the Bible is not modern and scientific. And that was the doorway. But then I also was reading Michael Heiser, which, you know, his book, The Unseen Realm is a, you know, highly recommend for everybody. It's a must read. I think he's on the crest of a, this wave of a new understanding of the ancient Near Eastern context. Michael Heiser, and he's an evangelical scholar, you know,
0: believes in the Bible. he a great American YouTube sea. series on Genesis that I always yeah. recommend. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. And then, of course, so I was reading all this stuff and then I discovered John Walton later, you know, and I've kept up with him and I really, really respect him. So look i mean there's, they don 't all agree and and i don 't even you know i don't have absolute beliefs on it on some of these things, but I definitely these are men and 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 i i tend i don't tend to trust atheists or liberal Christians you know I will listen to their side, but I will always check and see well what you know what is the other side saying what do what does a confessing Christian theologian say, not just a critical theologian? I like to read both sides right. And so and that's where I started to realize that this this dichotomy that is in a lot of evangelicalism where it's like it's either or, you know, it's like you either believe in evolution or creation. You can't believe in both. You know, it's just a false dichotomy. It may it's you know, like I said, I don't I don't accept evolution as being truthful, but I also understand that there are brilliant Christians much smarter than me and who are scientists Who actually believe that the two do go together, and I think that you're a fool if you just dismiss this kind of thing,
0: right? Yeah, the evidence for that really, frankly, kind of scares me. I'm not a theistic evolutionist, much less a naturalistic evolutionist, Mm -hmm. but the evidence that is growing exponentially to support that. I'm just not ready to study that and come to a conclusion on it yet. I'm kind of chickening yeah. out.
1: That's fair. That's fair. Cause it's a big arena, you know, but for me, I, and I, to be honest with you, I'm kind of the same way with you. Cause I, I know that science is going to be, if, if you go into the science of it, there's a lot to learn. And I stuck with the scripture side because to me, I'm like, you know, so my point was, is I used to believe that, you know, you either believe in evolution or Genesis one. And it's like, no, that's just simply not true. If evolution were to be proved to be to, to be true, I don't think it wouldn't, I don't think it would contradict the Bible at all, actually, because like I said, the difference in understanding was realizing that the ancient worldview was not modern and scientific. And so it's, right. they're not writing the same way. And once you realize that it's, it's not this either or thing, and it's not this stressful tension filled thing because you realize it's diff- two it, different, it's apples and oranges, right? And so the two things can be true if, you know, or, or not, you know, but the point is, is it's not, it's not just either or. And that's what, that's what freed me up to at least start to, to see, read the Bible. And that's when I started realizing that I was reading the Bible through my own prejudice of modern worldview. You know, like we live in a post enlightenment worldview and we don't realize that we assume so many things that they didn't back then. So when, you know, for instance, you know, you read, oh, he stretches out the heavens, you know, like a tent. Right. See, that matches Big Bang cosmology with the expanding universe stretching out. It's like, no, actually, that's not at all what that concept means. We can talk about that in a minute, but but that's not at all what it means. And so to to force our worldview on the text is like turning the Bible into some kind of like magical thing that that you shape to fit your view rather than. Yeah. finding out what did they intend to write and who did they write to, what it did it mean to them, and then drawing, you know, the lesson or the moral or whatever. You know, yeah, the, we, the...
0: we tend to read it as a source of proof texts as Mm -hmm. opposed to recognizing it as ancient literature that's got really, really deep thoughts in it if we were to read it that way. So we not only distort it by putting it in our worldview and turn it into something that it's not, but we miss the truth that it's actually trying to communicate. You know, a
1: good example This I get get from John Walton. I I steal a lot from him. So, you know, a lot of what I, a lot of what I write uh, is influenced by him as well as others. But I, you know, one of the points he makes that I completely understand and support is is this idea that, take for instance, you know, the Genesis one, right? You know, to us it looks obviously, like obviously it's talking about the creation of the physical universe. Well, it is talking about the physical universe creating it to a certain degree. But when you realize that in the ancient world... Like In the modern world, we are very empirically oriented in terms of of our understanding, and we're very materialist. We've been infected by a materialist mindset that tends to reduce things to its material structures. So when we read that to us, we see the material, right? Oh, so it's all about creating the material universe. But in the ancient world, they didn't think in those terms because they didn't think – like us they weren't materialists and so for example you know you look at the uh, ancient egyptian thing and you know the goddess leaning over the world she's and in her belly are the stars and stuff and and they don't they're not talking about the physicality they're trying to explain what they see in terms of me uh function and purpose and meaning so their description of the goddess nut and stuff holding up the sky that's just their way of making sense of what they're seeing and so, the same thing is with the Bible in the sense that they observe something and they're trying to make sense of it. And as they're describing, they're more concerned. The ancient mindset in general is more concerned about the meaning and purpose and function of things. You know, the purpose of, they're not about like, is the sun a burning ball of fire in the sky? No, what they say, what's the purpose of the sun? The sun is to light, to light right. the day. You know what I'm saying? So, God created the lights, the day, you know, for the. You know uh, the moon isn't a light it's actually a reflection right so that's not literal there and but it's it's a light in the sense of its purpose and that's what Genesis one is basically more talking about rather than you know how did God put together the molecules and stuff like that they weren't even interested in that they they didn't think right. in those terms just like just like another another one of these things that I think is our bias is we now are infected by naturalism, which is the belief that everything has a natural explanation and a cause to it. Now Christians say, "Oh no, that's not true. I don't, I don't think that way." Well, actually, you you do. You've been <laughs> affected by it, whether you think so or not, because every time you talk about uh, scientific laws, as if there's some impersonal law that is is like organizing and dictating everything, that is actually the effects of naturalism. Now, I'm not saying you can't use that language, you know, but we are creatures of our culture. And the very notion that there is a natural law uh, or scientific laws of nature, you know, that are operating, that is something that's completely alien to the ancient world. They saw everything as being controlled by the gods or by God.
0: It was a very spiritual worldview in the sense it was very metaphysical, not physical
1: yeah, exactly. And so, that yeah, that's why they would say things like, you know, oh, the thunder is the gods being angry or even in the Bible, you know, God brings the thunder and judges and people now laugh and go, oh, oh, that's obviously wrong because we know that it's just nature. But no, you actually don't know that. It's very possible that God is doing that because he controls everything. And so actually both can be true at the same time. This is another one of those either or things where it's like, yeah, there is a regularity to nature, but. God is also in it and working in it and through it providentially. And so he can actually, you can describe all of nature as being the regular activity of God. And that's completely philosophically, theologically, and logically legitimate. But these are the things that I, again, when we go to the text and we say, and the Bible says, the sun... The sun rises and, or the sun stood in the sky, or the sun rises and sets, and and we say, see, that's the notion of the flat earth, that there's a sun that's going around, or at least that the sun is going around the earth, right? right. And then we now, in the modern day, Christians will try to defend that by saying, no, that's just the description of what we see, because even today, in our world that we know is, uh, uh, you know, heliocentric, even we say that the sun rises and sets, yeah but we believe there's a distinction between what we see and what really is but they did not
0: yeah we're imposing our view on them whenever we whenever we say oh well that's just a figure of speech well it yeah, wasn't to them they didn't exactly
1: know any and that and that comes with it's being now you know many people just react to, oh that's liberalism or something it's like no 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 it's understanding the world through their eyes and that's where We've become very, I think, culturally imperial, cultural imperialists. If we read the Bible in our own context without taking into into understanding their context.
0: So let's get into this whole cosmology that they had, because they, while they did refer to things in in spiritual terms and have much more of a spiritual outlook on how everything worked. They did refer to specific things in specific locations. So that whole yeah. Cosmic Geography is all through the Bible, and I'm going to not wait for you to plug it, but your, Do it now. your book, Noah <laughs> Primeval, has 30 pages. I, I've got the Audible version of it, and just that addendum on the Cosmic Geography is a 45-minute lecture that will tell you everything you ever wanted to know about what the Bible says about how the universe is set up. And because As a Christian, I believe the Bible is infallible, but it does contain this stuff. And if it's not teaching this stuff, then there's some other truth that it is using that worldview to explain. And I need to discover what that truth is and hold to that truth instead of jumping through all kinds of tortured hoops to try to justify how those particular references are true.
1: Yeah. So what I did was when I wrote my novels, no primeval, just so people know, it's a fictional novel retelling the story of Noah. uh, And it's a little bit fantastical because I try to show the spiritual world, but I show it. It's it's kind of, uh, it's hard to explain, but it's the same way the fantasy works in the sense of I show spiritual realities interacting in that world. And so it's kind of like Lord of the Rings meets the Bible, right? But but it's very biblically faithful in that sense, and it's very historically reliable. But I knew that Christians, in particular, I knew might be shocked by it, and um, some even offended. But so far, that's that hasn't been the case. Not too many. I think most Christians get it. They're a lot sharper than what people give them credit for. <laughs> but nevertheless, but nevertheless, the Christians like to have things explained too. It's like, well, where'd you get this? You know, because you know we believe in the Bible, and we tend to like to have things proven from the Bible. I get that. So what I did was. Even though I wrote this novel, you don't, you know, I did what Michael Crichton used to do. You know, Michael Crichton would write this cool story, like uh, you know, Jurassic Park or whatever. And then he would write a, an appendix at the end of the book, just describing some of the research that he found that was that the fiction was based on. And I thought I like that idea, so I decided to do the same thing with my novels, and that's that's what you're referring to. So in in the Noah novel, at the end, I show the historical and biblical basis, mostly biblical, for this ancient picture of the worldview and how they saw the world so that Christians could see this isn't liberalism and this isn't just making stuff up or whatever. It really is based on the way they saw and understood the world. And um, so we can jump into some of those elements if you want.
0: Yeah. The Noah Primeval book is free on your website, and I'm going to put links to that in lots of places so the audience can go get that. Does that book also have an addendum on the book of Enoch? Because I know no. you offer of.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no, that that's in a that's in my book when giants were upon the earth or the right. book of Enoch. I have a separate little booklet that you can buy for just a couple bucks. But uh, and that's been a very, very popular one. They Christians have found that very helpful because I don't. I accept Enoch as a as a serious source of biblical thinking, but I don't accept it as scripture. Correct. But this again, this is this dichotomy that many Christians are now finally getting over that it's not just the Bible and nothing else. I only believe what's in the Bible and I don't believe in anything else. That's ridiculous. And, you know, and you can say that something is not scripture, but that it's still valuable in bringing light and understanding to the scripture and because, of course, that's what the Christian church has done for its entire existence. It's only been recently in the fundamentalist sort of reaction to liberalism where they've like, I only believe the Bible. I'm not going to believe anything else. And that's just ridiculous. we got to get over that. And the, the result of that is the book of Enoch was a very influential Jewish text that exp- extrapolated upon the uh, upon the Genesis story of the flood and the giants before the flood and such. Yeah.
0: And, and it's actually mentioned in the Bible and yes. quoted in the Bible, yes. which lends it a lot more credibility than other things. Are exactly. you offering the Enoch booklet free for people who subscribe on your website?
1: To be honest, I'm not, I can't remember because I've kind of got an automatic system set up there. I think you do, if you sign up, if you sign up at Gadawa.com, I do believe you—you'll get some. I'll just say this: you'll get some free offers, and Book Enoch might be one of those. Um,
0: I, I, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. So, if not, it's worth a couple of bucks to go get it. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, let's get into these different. Tears and what they are and how we know that the Hebrews believed in them. Yeah.
1: So, the, you know, the, I think the good, good place to start is the one you mentioned, you know, in the New Testament itself, where it really clearly shows that in heaven, on earth and under the earth in Philippians 2.10. And, and of course, like you said, that's not the only place. There's plenty of places all over. And the basic concept is this, that there's the earth, terra firma, which is where man lives and humans live or whatever. And humans are the the rulers, shall we say. And then there's the heavens or the skies above. And that includes God's throne in the heavens. So in other words, everything above the earth is in the heavens or in heaven. And the heavens are very linked to spiritual reality. This is why the ancient world, including the Jews, linked the stars with divinities or with uh, spiritual entities you know whether angels or gods or what have you they linked them because they thought that that was part of the heavens which was part of heaven and then above that there's god's throne and god's throne is a reflection of, of the throne on earth throne or the temple in heaven is a reflection of the temple on earth and this is a common view it's not just the jews but and then under the earth is would be sheol And, or Hades is the Greek version, same thing. It's the underworld. And that was where the souls of the dead went to rest and wait or sleep or what have you. That's where they went to to wait until the judgment or something like that in the future. And part of that paradigm is that there's something called the abyss. And the word, the abyss is a a word about watery. And it's not just the seas, The abyss is actually like the deep underlying sea of the underworld. And so in this picture, the abyss leads to Hades or leads to Sheol. And in some pictures, there's pillars that are holding it up. And, uh, you know, like we know the Greek version, right, of Styx. And, you know, we've heard of that version. We've heard of Dante's, you know, Catholic version of the different levels of hell. But in terms of the Bible, it's very it's it's actually a little vague. There's references and assumptions, and there's there's not like texts that say, okay, this is what the heavens look like. There's Sheol, and then down in Sheol, this is what's going on, and then up in that, you know, it's yeah. more just poetic references that you have to pick up and draw from to understand what they assumed to be true about the world. But nevertheless, part of that picture also includes the um you know, the, the pillars that are holding up the earth and the earth is actually usually a flat disc. And there's a dome that goes above it, kind of like a snow globe. And the dome is called the firmament. And the firmament is where all the stars and, and sun and moon, the, those are what they travel in that, that solid dome that, you know, cause you think about it, think about ancient man, who's not scientific, you know, go out into a, you know, like, Montana or Dakota some flat land, you know, where you can see things, you know, and just look around you. If you look, you spin around, what you see is a circle around you and then you look above you and it looks kind of, if you look, if you look at the sky above you, it's basically a dome. It's like a snow globe. At least that's what it looks like. Right. You know, so they describe things that way. And it's and then blue they, like
0: water. So there must be yeah, water up there because it comes exactly, down sometimes.
1: Exactly. And we're not talking about clouds. We're talking about, they literally believed it was a solid Again, these are hints and references in the Bible itself, and we can, we can go over some of these, but right now just painting the big picture, right? And so that's where the gates of heaven open for the flood to come. The rains come from gates opening in that solid firmament. And then above the firmament, there's water. And that's why you kind of, maybe that's why you see the sky is blue, because there's water above it. And that's where God's temple is, is in the waters. And by the way, this is all the Hebrew worldview. Again, this is not absolute. There's some varieties of, uh, and stuff, but these are the. This is the general sort of picture that I think you get in the ancient world. And that is driving a lot of the understanding of the ancient Hebrews as they write.
0: It's interesting when you you study this from a historical perspective. I got started in this when I learned in like second grade that my ancestors were flat earthers from a cult that was formed in Zion, Illinois that taught, it was actually a government school There in Zion, Illinois, that was associated with the church, and they taught a flat earth. And so that always fascinated me, and that got me interested in studying what the Bible said about this, because it was a religious belief for them, just like it is for many flat earthers today. But when you study how the view of that changed over time, you don't see the Jews or the Christians in in later times saying, oh, no, we always believed the earth was a sphere or whatever. You see them as science developed, trying to fit the science with the old worldview. So you can find like rabbinical writings that talk about whether the sun, when it we don't see it anymore, is it going around behind this firmament? Or is it going around underneath the earth? And debate yeah. on that. But the assumption is this firmament exists, you know? Uh, but you find that kind of thing all through history when you look at it and eventually the things that we have taken as literal scientific things out of the Bible, eventually we have to drop those and catch up with, you know, what science is actually proven at that point. Um, Let me uh, bring up one verse know, I think it's good to deal with objections. You know, there's lots,
1: there's lots of stuff we can talk about, but for example, you know, uh, the earth spread out like a blanket or like a tent. Again, these are ancient people. They They were familiar with tents and they looked around the earth and they saw it as, remember what I said, the, snow globe is one is a modern way of saying it right but the dome above that to them it's like a tent right because you got the earth is the floor and the dome is the tent and so you have job saying god takes hold of the skirts of the earth that's like the skirts of a tent and the wicked are shaken out of it have you comprehended the expanse of the earth psalm 136 to him who spreads out the earth above the waters Isaiah 44, I am the Lord who spread out the earth by myself. So there's this spread outness, which is what you do with a tent. See, that's how they pictured it. And that lends itself at least towards the flat, the flatness. There's more specifically about that. but And, and the tent-like vault, he set a tent for the sun in Psalm 19. In Psalm 104, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. This is where I say the things like when you see stretching, you think, oh, that's like the the uh, expanding universe. No, no, it's, they're saying he stresses out the tent like a heaven. He stretched out the heavens like a tent. They're seeing that the tent, that, that, that the sky above them is like the tent. The dome is the tent, right? So these are the, the, the language, the words that they used to describe it. But then someone will say, well, what about Isaiah 40, 22? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth right. and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. See the circle. They did believe in a sphere back then. Well, actually, no, that's not no. the case. That, that particular word for circle is, is not the word for sphere. It's, it's actually the word for like a flat, uh, actually, I'm sorry. It's, it's actually the word that could be referenced to a vaulted dome actually, because it's used in other places as a vaulted dome. But in particular, Isaiah, in the same book of Isaiah, a couple chapters later or a couple of chapters earlier, he talks about, he uses the word for a ball, which is a sphere and it's a completely different word. So he's not re- using sphere there. Whatever you think circle means, it's not. It's not that. But the circle of the earth, this is where you get the notion that there's a flat disk. That is, That does show up in, in several other other passages. You know, For example, Proverbs 8, 27, it talks about when he established the heavens, I was there. This is talking about wisdom. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Right. So remember, you know, so you've got this, then the notion was that there was just water, right? Whatever, the, however that's there, there's just water. And he draws a circle. In other words, that's the, that's the ending of the earth. That's the edges of the earth. And then it says when he assigned to the sea its limit. In other words, it has limits. It has boundaries. And it's bounded by that circle so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. There's right. a lot of passages that talk about the foundations of the earth as pillars, as if it's holding up this disc, you know, with shield b- below it. But uh, so these are the kind of uh, so, so my point is, is that the circle thing comes up inscribing a circle on the face of the waters is a common notion. And that's the notion of the flat disc earth, which, you know, you've got the land in the middle. The center of the earth is usually whatever nation is telling its own story. They are the center of the earth. And. Babylon did it, right? And Jer- the Bible does it. It says Jerusalem is the heart the heart of the earth, the soul of the earth, or the center of the earth. You know, I think it's Ezekiel.
0: And you see, you see that where Christ was tempted and Satan took him up there in Jerusalem. That's the central point of the story. And yeah. they were able to see all the nations or all the earth. Yeah,
1: right, right from there. And... So you look around though so so and and you look around and you see that everywhere on land ultimately ends at sea so they thought this notion was that the sea then circled them all and the mountains on the edges held up the dome sometimes and all these kind of pictures going out but that's the language that that we read you know so you've got you know the the ends of the earth well the globe doesn't have ends right and the ends of the earth is used all over the bible Zechariah he rules from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth and again, we have to be careful not to import our own modern bias and say, "Well, that's just figuratively." Well, that yeah, it's figuratively to us, but not to them. Right. They literally saw when I mean, you looked at the horizon; that was the end of the earth. That's all they could see. That's all they thought that there was. And so, consequently, when they're using this language, they're meaning it what what it says. You know, oh, oh here's some here's a couple of cool ones. The pillars of the earth. You know, so you've got. Psalm 75.3, when the earth totters, you know, like earthquakes, whatever, and all its inhabitants, it is I, God, who keeps steady its pillars. You know, verse okay. Samuels 2.8, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. And again, this is not figurative. That's figurative to us, but not to them. Now, of course, you know, when we get to Sheol, you know, let's, let's jump down to Sheol. This notion of Sheol Sheol is a complex concept in the Bible because it is used in different ways. It is sometimes used as a metaphor for death. So for instance, Isaiah twenty-eight fifteen, Israel is sinning against God and Isaiah's, God is giving a judgment against Israel. He says, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement when the overwhelming whip passes, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll take shelter. So there, you know, this idea of of death and Sheol and the grave, you know, it's it's used as a metaphor, but it's also used for the grave itself. Right. So, if, for instance, it goes um, Isaiah 14, I think, says, you know, Sheol is stirred up to meet you when you come. In other words, it says when you die, Sheol is stirred up to meet you when you come. He's talking to a king, a king that was very proud. And it says it raises the shades, all right, Those are, that the word for the word shades is actually rephaim, which which basically is, is not just souls, it's actually supposedly mighty kings of old who are now dead. And the belief was that the mighty kings of old who were dead then ruled down in the underworld. That was the ancient Near Eastern world. And But the Hebrews had a different notion. They mock that. So this is where I want to bring in this notion that okay, there is a commonality, there are similarities between the ancient Near Eastern worldview and the Hebrew worldview, the flat earth, the disk, all that kind of stuff. But there are also differences, and this might be one of those differences where they do believe that there's a Sheol or underworld that people go to when they're dead. But they believe that there is no reigning in hell. There, you know, there is no ruling kings in hell. The irony is if you read Isaiah 14, he says, these these Rephaim shades were leaders of the earth, but now they are maggots, are their bed and worms are their covers and they are weak. And so they're saying, whereas the ancient world believed that down in Sheol or Hades, these beings ruled, he's saying, No, no, both the good and the bad die and go there, but it's 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 a it's like a land of forgetfulness. It's like dreary all darkness you can't see they don't know so they just describe it as this world of complete and it's cut off from god so this is the picture that they give and and so so there is differences absolutely and And sometimes
0: are often where you find the truth that's being revealed it will it you know excellent when god would reveal the truth he would do it in a culture where there were similar beliefs about certain things but when you spot the differences, that's the new stuff. That's what he's trying to change Israel's understanding. Absolutely, of. absolutely. Um, and
1: the idea there is that you know these these great kings on earth are actually nothing everyone dies you know like the book of ecclesiastes everyone dies and everyone is forgotten in fact the the uh, sheol the underworld is called the land of forgetfulness in the bible you know it's like yeah because once you die you're ultimately forgotten right. sure some famous people last a longer a little bit longer than others but ultimately everyone's forgotten and that's this notion of why it's so sad and depressing to the jews but they also had that hope that one day there would be a judgment and we would we would be raised, you know, so there's that notion to play off of it. But my point is, is that shield was also used like there will be Christians that say, give you Bible examples to say, well, it's just shield is another word for the grave. It'll say in Psalm 88, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon's is another word that's used uh, in reference to shield as well or that Isaiah 14 verse you know again it says sheol is stirred up beneath you to meet you when you come you think you're a great king in other words but it you know these great kings that you think are down there they rise to greet you they were leaders of the earth it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations and all of them will answer and say to you you too have become weak as we are you've become like us your pomp is brought down to sheol the sound of your harps maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers so th- here's a classic example where like all the th- all the elements are combined it is talking about a place where the souls of the dead go right because that's what the shades were that's what the rephaim are But it's also clearly talking about like you're dead and in the ground because maggots, you know, your body's eaten by maggots in the ground and worms. Right. And so he he references that there's an interplay of all of these elements that shield is sometimes used as a metaphor for the grave or as death itself. But it's also that place where the souls of the dead go to wait for their time of comeuppance or of the judgment. And so that's it's a little bit more complex than just saying oh it's 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 just a metaphor or it's just a literal place that's why we have to be you know discerning and and uh or shall we say nuanced in how we approach it so right. and and you know there are a lot of people that might say well if if you find all these places that that are metaphors then why can't you just interpret the passages that you say might be literal as being just metaphorical and to which you know, to which I said, well, for example, that was one passage where it's like, no, it's it's not just, it's not just metaphorical. It's actually like a place. And then there's a case where the sons of Korah in Numbers 16, you know, the sons of Korah rebelled against Moses, and so God opened up the earth, and it says they all, all of them that you know rebelled against Moses, the earth opened up, and all of them went down alive into Sheol. Right, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Well, if Sheol is just is just the grave or just going down to the ground, then that's not what this is. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about it going to an actual place, and they're not. It's not talking about their their souls going to Sheol. It's literally like they went down alive into Sheol, and then they died. So, right. in other words, it's this belief that nevertheless it is a place below them. They don't know exactly what it's like. But there is that this place below them. And these people actually went down alive into it, you know, and she was
0: actually that cryptic verse that talks about Christ going down and preaching the gospel or something
1: (laughs) to the spirits of the dead. Right,
0: right. So so we can't just, you know, write it off as, oh, it's just metaphor because. Christ wasn't laying in the tomb preaching to himself. You know, he was actually at some place according to scripture.
1: And by the way, uh, you know, that Jesus himself said in his parable, now it's a parable, I don't think it was a literal statement of fact, but he's talking about the parable of Lazarus, you know, remember? And he says right. and he says in Luke sixteen, he says, in Hades Being in torment, the rich man went to Hades. He died and went to Hades. And Hades, remember, is simply the Greek equivalent of Sheol. So if you read the Greek Old Testament, I'm pretty sure that it says Hades instead of Sheol. Same thing.
0: Right. Jesus
1: himself tells a story about a dead man whose soul goes to Hades being in torment he lifted up his eyes and saw abraham far off at you know abraham's bosom and lazarus uh, i'm sorry and lazarus at his side you know this is the abraham's bosom thing well look whether or not you believe that the story really happened or whatever or maybe it's just a parable making a point but my point here is that jesus is trafficking in that same imagery that hades is a place where souls of the dead go it's not just a metaphor for the grave right so that's that's where we get those things because you know, like I said, it's a, it's it's been a debate. This is this has been a debate going on for for a long time, and scholars on both sides. So you know, I, I acknowledge that. But um, and then you know, so if we jump, if I can, just jump back to the firmament for some for a second, because I never really addressed that clearly. You know, Genesis one six. The modern translations again add their bias to the text, and they've changed it so. Genesis 1, 6, when he's creating the firmament, it says, let there be an expanse in the midst right. of the waters.
0: They're let helping it helping us.
1: They're... Yes, exactly. But the truth is, is that word in Hebrew is rakia, which is the word for firmament. And it's always a reference to a solid, it's like a solid beaten out bronze dome. <laughs> but I mean, there are other passages in, in visions such as Ezekiel, where it talks about the rak- rakia, the firmament, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out above the heads of the living creatures, so it's clearly a solid, a solid element there. The rakia is a solid surface, is my point. And so when you see that word, uh, be careful to understand the expanse is not really what it is. It's actually firmament, which is a solid thing, and that's why it's holding back the waters above. Because the notion was that the waters were above the heavens, and God's throne was in the waters. Let me give you an example. Of this. this is where like people say. Oh, well, actually, the the waters above were a canopy, uh, and that's where the flood came from. I used to believe all this, by the way. So, I mean, right. I, was a, I, I was a young Earth earther and everything, the whole the whole shebang. You know, so only that was referring to a canopy, but it's no longer there because the canopy came down when the flood happened, blah, blah, blah. But the, here's the problem with that is um, David writes about the he- waters in the heavens long after the flood. So, for example, in Psalm 104, David says stretching out the heavens like a tent. There it is again. He lays the beams of his chambers. He's talking about God's chambers, the beams of his chambers of his temple on the waters. Mm-hmm. Psalm 148 says, Praise him, Yahweh, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. So there's waters above the heavens, right? And and there's many other places. You know, Jeremiah talks about there being waters above, waters in the heavens. And this isn't the clouds. This is right. actually like waters you know
0: well even in the flood account itself where it talks about the water receding it uses a hebrew word there i think the king james translates it as assuaged or something but it uses a hebrew word there that basically means it went back to where it came from
1: yeah 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 and you know windows of heaven is a phrase that shows up all throughout the bible the windows of heaven and again 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 yes we see those as metaphorical but they did not. <laughs> they thought there were windows up in that solid dome that let the water come down, and that's where the flood happened, et cetera. So we have to be careful in that, In that, uh, which is kind of interesting, because this is not to say that there's a, <laughs> there's a nuance to this, because I also find myself dealing with Christians a lot of times who misinterpret Scripture by taking everything literally. So the Hebrews were very poetic, very poetic. This is not to say that everything should be taken literally, because I don't think that's the case. But all this means is it's not an either or. You can't just say I take the Bible literally and you just take it all allegorically, which is means that's ridiculous. Everybody right. understands that there's there is literalness, so to speak. that's a bad word, but literalness and figurativeness, or poetry and symbols. Symbols are often actually integrated with the literal historical events. So there, in other words, it takes a wise and discerning studier of scripture to be able to untangle and and understand these you can't just like say oh it's all literal or oh it's all poetic that's completely irresponsible in in my opinion but in this so back to my point here though in this case i think that this is their primitive understanding of the world that as they're looking at it and they're using the terms that they know now of course they don't see sheol right so they can't say they saw sheol so therefore those are those are suppositions that the writers are making based on the general picture everyone believes is some sort of pillars or whatever and yet at the same time like you mentioned earlier there are some times where god deliberately is is polemical against other views like you know there's that verse that says he hangs the earth on nothing and and people say see that shows that the earth is in space the bible knew that the earth was in space like no no actually i think if you understand that context again the ancient worlds believe that ultimately the earth was on the back of a turtle or it was held up by some creature, you know, that the was a common notion. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that the text is just simply saying like, no, no, there is none of that stuff. God's the one. At the same time, there are other passages where it might say that there are pillars of the earth. Right. So, so there's this polemical notion going on. And like you said, it's using the common worldview that was not consistent. So therefore there's variations of it, but it was using the common worldview of that time common cosmology of how the universe was in order to communicate the spiritual truths so that's where i had to come to was does it you know as i was exploring these things and going well, wow this makes it seem like you know the bible's is does that you know like if we're saying it's the word of god but if we're saying it's wrong in it's picked physical picture of the universe well does that make the bible wrong and and you already indicated that No, what it means is, is that God, it's called, it's the theological concept called accommodation. And what that means is God uses the current culture that he's communicating to. And in this case, it would be, you know, Bronze Age, you know, ancient Middle Eastern culture, ancient Near Eastern culture. He uses those to communicate his spiritual truths, because if he told them the way things really are, it wouldn't make sense. Actually, we wouldn't understand it. So he has to use the terms that we understand in order to communicate his spiritual truths. That's why Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God, he didn't tell us literally what it was. He used parables because you can't understand the kingdom of God. You can only understand it through stories like a steward or a sowing of wheat in the field or, you know, these kinds of things. That's the you can understand through concepts that you're familiar with. That's how you communicate difficult to understand or difficult to realize spiritual truths. And so that's how I come to see it is that, no, it's not saying that God's lying. It's not saying that it's not the word of God. It's not saying that it's undependable, liberal, or anything like that. It's just simply saying the Bible is not about teaching science. It's not teaching us about the way the physical cosmos operates at all. It's actually just using their worldview to communicate the truths of God, which is that God is the creator of all. Whatever you believe about the way the world is. God is the one who sustains it, who upholds it, et cetera, et cetera. And those are the truths that I think the Bible is really focusing on, and it's not trying to teach us science.
0: Yeah, I covered that and did a whole episode, basically, on accommodation and how that kind of eliminates what I call caveman theology, where you think that the Bible is so simple that a caveman could pick it up and understand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, that's kind of a lazy approach. Yes. This whole idea of, well, if it can't be taken literally, I must take it literally. I mean, that is, uh, the Bible is so complex in its genres and particularly in, in Hebrew where they use, chiastic structures to point to the central thing that they're trying to get you to focus on. You know, when we miss all of that in, in our yes. approach. Um, you know, what but, you,
1: what you call caveman theology. I, I like that. I, 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 I refer to it as the, uh, the phrase that I used to hear, which was always like, you know, uh, if a, if a, if a simple child can't understand it, then it's certainly not the word of God because God were to communicate to us. He would communicate in a way that even a child could understand well, unfortunately, that's that not true. <laughs> yeah, that that's literally not true. And that is an example of you saying, if God's going to be God, he's got to be God the way I think he should be, or he's not God. And right. to me, I call that hubris. Sometimes they go, wow, there's so much deep depth here that many Christians don't catch or miss or misunderstand or misinterpret. So much so that I think that if you just pick up the Bible and I just read the plain reading of the Bible... I don't get into all this other background or whatever. It's like you just read the text cuz the power of God is right there. Well, there is power of God in it. No denying that, obviously. Right. But actually actually if you just read the Bible plainly, you will actually be misinterpreting it because you will by nature import your own worldview upon the text and you will almost certainly misread most of it. Right. And that but but so then do you have to be a scholar to be saved? No, of course not, but here's the point. This is where God gave the gifts to the body of Christ. He gave the gifts of teachers and of, right. And of preachers. And so in other words, God gives us these men, these scholars to help us to understand the depth deeper things of God and And that's how we learn and grow into become adults because when you're a child,
0: uh, think as a child,
1: (laughs) you think as a child, exactly. So there is a growing up that's that has to take place here. So, and that has to do with understanding that Bible in its original context. So when we say that, we're not saying. It's all poetic. It's all allegorical. It's all, you know, it's like, no, none of it's all. It's always a combination. So you have to have wisdom in understanding what is and what isn't figurative, what is and what isn't symbolic, et cetera, and historical, et cetera. But you have to give priority to that ancient world and the way they saw and understood things. And that's why, you know, this notion of creation stories. You have to understand the ancient world, the purpose of creation stories, they're not the same as as ours. And thus also the cosmos works, this, this right. cosmic geography we've been talking about, you know.
0: Well, we talked about how it was laid out. Can you uh, talk a little bit about what or who inhabited these different levels in the Hebrew worldview and whether or not these things stayed there or whether or not they... <laughs> move from one level to the next and this i know will get us a little bit more into the episode i have planned on the nephilim and the watchers and the divine council and all of that kind of stuff when we get into genesis 6 but just briefly can you kind of sure. lay out their view on their more spiritual or metaphysical view of the universe than what we tend to think of
1: sure sure yeah you know that's where that's where the um the thing about, okay, humans are imagers of God, meaning we, you know, interestingly, here's an interesting thing. So, so talk about earth first, you know, so obviously, you know, look at creation count and the point there is to show that man is the apex of creation and we're responsible for caring for creation because we are God's stewards, right? So, so God created, but we are actually the, we are like idols of God. What I mean by that is, you know, the concept of idols, you shall make no idol, right? Well, it's a common misunderstanding to believe that the little bronze and wooden statues or whatever, that they actually believed those were the gods and they worshiped them. They didn't. There, it is idol worship, but what they actually believed was they would create the image of the god, like a Marduk or something. And then they would have ceremonies called like the opening of the mouth ceremonies where they would bring it down and baptize it, the image in the water or whatever and do all these rituals. And it was supposed to accept the breath of the god into it. And so the image of Marduk became a representative of the god on the earth. It wasn't like literally the god. It was the conduit or the portal through which the god was connect, uh, communicated with, right?
0: Image
1: image bearer. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. And so that's why when God calls us image bearers, that's kind of what we are. We're like those. And that's why he breathes his, you know, his spirit into us, his his breathes life into us. And we represent God on the earth and we have that kind of authority. So that's why it's called human exceptionalism, (laughs) meaning that, you know, like people say, American exceptionalism. Well, we're human exceptionalism. And so basically a man is supposed to be the ultimate ruler of the earth, et cetera. However, and, and it says God made him a little lower than the angels, yet crowned him with you know majesty because we are his imagers. And we already I think we already mentioned in down in Sheol was the land of the dead, and it was basically the souls of both the good and and the bad went there. Like our modern notion of heaven and hell is not really in the text of the old testament. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying, and maybe there's a development of some kind, but Actually, I think there's a development of actual theological truth that that the notion is that uh, back in the Old Testament, when anyone died, good or bad, they would go to Sheol and await, await to be released from Sheol, right? And I think when Christ came, that there was a release from Sheol and that now it's, you know, you either go straight to heaven to be with the Lord or you await in Sheol with the, the other people. But nevertheless, in the in the Old Covenant... Down there are the souls of the dead and the good and the bad dead. And they're pretty equal. And it's pretty, like I said, the, the idea is that it's dark, it's dreary, it's, it's you know. So it's not like they're walking around and doing anything. In fact, Enoch, the book of Enoch, has an interesting picture of the underworld. I'm not saying it's true, but it's the way they kind of depicted it. It's in some of my newer books. I draw the picture of it. but. They thought that there was this mountain down there where you had Abraham's bosom was there with all the righteous. And then the, there were different uh, areas, pits, you know, like there's a pit. Like you, you hear the term the pit, which is in, in a lot of scriptures. And again, it's sometimes used as a metaphor, but it's based on the belief that the pit was that notion of when you die and you're, you're going down, you're just waiting for judgment. Now, in Sheol, there was a place called Tartarus. And this is where you mention that the book of Peter actually mentions this, and it says that's where the disobedient angels were bound, the ones before the flood. We don't. I won't go into the details now. You can do that on that other program. But, but this is in there. So there's a deep, there's a prison called Tartarus in Sheol, and that's where the the rebellious watchers were. And now though, now let's jump up into heaven to so there, so in Sheol there's sort of an equal equality of deadness. It's not like people running around ruling or anything like that. They're all just kind of equally dead and, and waiting for judgment type of thing. But then up in heaven, you know, you've got, of course, there's a lots of different divine creatures. If you start with God's throne room, you know, there's a term called the heavenly host, which is also called the holy ones. It's also called the sons of God. You do a study on this and you find that that's the innumerable host that surround God's throne and gives him glory, whatever. And it's innum- it's, it's innumerable. It's like 10,000 times 10,000 is the word they always use, right? But there's also divine creatures called cherubim that hold the throne and seraphim that are above the throne. And the seraphim are actually, actually they're serpentine with, with wings. It's kind of weird. And then the cherubim are these multi- faced hybrid creatures that, and a lot of them are very similar to the Egyptian notion of Sphinxes too. And, you know, you, you see these in some of the visions of Ezekiel and such, right? So you've got cherubim holding the throne, so to speak. And then, but there's also another strange, one called the Ophanim, but that's, it's kind I of, don't, I don't know too much about that. There's not much, there's not much in the Bible that really reveals that. So the sons of God are the ones that in, in the book of Genesis, it talks about some of them rebelled and came to earth and mated with women. And so those are called; those are the sons of God that came to Earth, and they were judged. And those are the ones that were put into Tartarus at the flood. But there's still, you know, there's still bad angels around. But here's the thing: there's also demons in in the picture of the the Bible. And interestingly, there's no not really much talk at all about demons in the Old Testament. Maybe Saul, you know, but other than that. They're not around. They don't talk about them. And why? Why? What's the point? You know, Heiser's book on on demons is coming out soon. I'm going to get that when it comes out. But he he talks about the word for demon is actually more like daemon. And the Christian, the New Testament lent a more negative view to the original notion, which was not as negative, but it was definitely like what they called daemon. The New Testament called demon. Nevertheless, in the Bible, when it talks about demons, it just calls them evil spirits. It doesn't say where they came from. They're just there. And to go beyond that is speculation. And so anybody who talks about demons, they're speculating. However, the book of Enoch suggests what I actually do accept is a strong possibility, and most likely the case, that the demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim, the giants who were killed at the flood. The Nephilim were the hybrid Progeny of wa- of 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 angelic divine watchers mating with human women. Their progeny was the nephilim, which means they're part an- angel, part human. Bizarre, I know, but they were judged because they were evil, and they were and they were. That's one of the reasons why the flood came, right? But those spirits, think about it. If those spirits, if they were just human, they would go to Sheol. But they're not just human. Human. They're part angelic, so their spirits don't end up in Sheol. They end up roaming the earth, and that's one again. That's speculation, but that's kind of how I see it. So when you hear the word watchers, that's connected to that divine council worldview, the Deuteronomy 32 thing. But basically, watchers are sons of God, I think, that were appointed to be specifically watchers over specific Gentile nations. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about that at, at the Tower of Babel, God placed the Gentile nations under the authority of these fallen sons of God, and they are called watchers. So, so in Daniel,
0: have to link to some of my Kaiser's stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely we'll show notes on this. But,
1: but that's when you get to Daniel, where Daniel talks about the watchers, right? And he's talking about watchers, and he says the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And most scholarship agrees that these are spiritual princes of nations. So you've got a spiritual prince or a watcher over Greece, a watcher over Persia, right? Meaning that. They are their authorities, whereas God was the watcher, or God was the uh, inheritance of Israel. He He said, "I'm going to be Israel's watcher, so to speak. I'm going to be their their inheritance. But these other Gentile nations, because they don't worship me, they're going to be they're going to inherit you know false gods, demonic entities that I place over them. So that's kind of the generic picture. And again, yeah, it's pretty pretty quick. And boy, I, I'm sure a lot of questions, a lot of issues for people. So we'll have to have to do that second um
0: yeah one podcast. thing that we haven't mentioned yet on this one is uh leviathan and rahab in the deep
1: yes so leviathan is an image that actually shows up in all my series because i love leviathan imagery and i think that you know this has also had a history of scholarship and and uh, you know dis- disagreements and stuff many christians think that oh that's a dinosaur or oh that's a sea monster or, a extinct sea monster or whatever again it's not really a literal creature in that Noah book, I have a separate appendix on Leviathan where I go over what Leviathan is. And basically, it is it is a de- des- deliberate symbol of chaos. It's the sea dragon of chaos. And it's something that all the ancient Near Eastern cultures believe, sort of used as a, a symbol for chaos. And so it represents the chaos of the world. Without their God, and so whenever a nation, including Israel, whenever they establish power, like when Israel was given the covenant at Sinai and then ultimately went and took over the Promised Land, what did God say? He said, "Look, I parted the waters and I crushed the heads of Leviathan, and they ate him in the wilderness." And and what He's saying there is when when God establishes a covenant, it is order, right? It is order and law, and truth and goodness, blah, etc., right? And so when when a God establishes His power rises to power or establishes his covenant he is crushing the chaos he's pushing the chaos back and creating his order and so everything outside that order is chaos so they say the desert the sea were symbols of chaos because they are chaotic right and so they would also call the gentiles chaos you know gentiles were like symbolized as the seas because they were chaos because they didn't have god but my point here is that the word the Leviathan shows up a lot of places and sometimes it's described like in Job pretty specifically, right? Although it's, you know, breathing fire and stuff like that. But, but nevertheless, um, the idea here is that there's several places where Leviathan is talked about and there's several places where it's called – where it's destroyed. So it's obviously not a single creature. It's, it's obviously not, uh, you know, a species of creature. It's a symbol for that chaos. So every time God has a victory or triumphs over, you know, someone or establishes a covenant – it's used in these terms of overcoming the waters overcoming the seas conquering the sea dragon of chaos conquering leviathan it's a very common motif in ancient near east to do that and so that's kind of what it is and that's why in the book of revelation leviathan with the seven heads comes up again why because it's you know satan's sort of last attempt to try to crush god's kingdom and that's so obviously everyone agrees that's symbolic. I I think they do unless you're crazy, but you know the, the seven-headed dragon is a symbol for, you know, whatever you think it's a symbol for, it's a symbol for the forces of Satan's forces of chaos who wants to destroy God's people, right? But God
0: doesn't he he kills it, right? And you see that back in Genesis 1 as well. It starts out with the spirit of God hovering over the deep which symbolizes chaos. Yeah. Yeah. And now, and, and it's interesting too, order because, to all of that.
1: Yes. And, and people will say, oh, but look at Genesis one. There's no Levi. He's God's not fighting with Levi. I think because that's the picture is God fighting the sea dragon. Now, God does fight the sea dragon in Psalm 73 or 74, where it talks about going through the Red Sea and establishing the Sinai covenant. It describes God as crushing the heads of the sea dragon, right? But it doesn't describe him doing that in Genesis 1. It just describes, oh, the sea monsters of the deep. It's almost like it's tame, like they're tame. But again, because it's a polemic, they're specifically saying in this polemic of Genesis 1, they're going to make, communicate the point that in one sense, God controls everything, so all the sea monsters are like tame before him, right? And the deep is something that he just tames, right? But then in other situations, the symbol of the sea dragon is used because in real history there was trauma and historical suffering. The people of God suffered at the hands of Egypt. And so there's a battle going on and God had to pull his people out to create his, his covenanted people, right? Well, that's, that's a form of historical violence. So he uses in those cases, he'll use Leviathan as a direct symbol indicating his conquering over that chaos. So yeah, that's, Oh, so what I did in my series, I, I made, the, I made the sea dragon literal, okay? But like I said, I what I do is I, I use fantasy as a way to show the spiritual world. So there's a sense in which Leviathan is literal, but he's not. He's just in the spiritual realm, and you're seeing the physical historical effects. But we, as the readers of the novel, are seeing that we're seeing behind this the veil so to speak we're seeing leviathan is there and he's
0: battling and all
1: battling the angels and stuff right so that's kind of how i depict it but it's the same symbolic meaning if that makes sense
0: it's it's kind of a reverse metaphor you're using something physical to talk about talk about the metaphor the spiritual as yeah. opposed to the other way around
1: yeah yeah so I'm kind of proud of that one because I, I've I, I've always been fascinated by Leviathan. And, and you know, I, it's funny, too, because this is a universal this is a universal image. Even to this day, I, I point out to people, it's like, you know, this isn't just some ancient, sometimes ancient things really stay with us. Right. For example, you'll see this in a lot of movies, you know, dra- and it's not just literal dragon movies. But I mean, that's the case. A lot of times, any ultimate monster in the end is really a dragon of chaos. It's you
0: know, yeah, no, they don't have, up from the date, you know. Yeah,
1: they they don't have to look like dinosaurs. The point is, is it's a dragon, but it's really interesting because for some reason we're drawn to that reptilian notion, and I think it has something to do with it. But uh, I always point to Avengers. I think it was the first Avengers in the first Avengers movie where the bad guy opens the portal to New York City. What comes out of it? They're large metallic dragons. They're literally like dragons, and they're coming to bring chaos, and the Avengers have to you know destroy. It. you see Hulk, you know, pounding the head of one and pounding it into the ground, which is exactly what Baal did. The God Baal of Canaan did that. But so did Yahweh because it's all a metaphor for when the good guys basically conquer this chaos that's trying to destroy the goodness of society
0: right i never thought i'd hear somebody compare the hulk to yahweh
1: yeah sure i mean i mean any any mighty any mighty god right but of course in my mind you know there's a danger with the superheroes because they become more like greek gods than than symbols of our god right and and i i i think that superheroes are an expression of our longing for transcendent deity and i think that But I also think that the more a culture goes away from the living God, I think the more that they tend to embrace these other gods, these superheroes as substitutes, basically, because if you don't have a reference, if you're not going to be referring to the living God. What are you going to refer to? Well, superhuman projections, you know, Uh, superheroes save us, you know what I mean? And. And so I'm, I'm not saying if you watch these, you know, you're succumbing to evil, but I definitely think that there's a danger to them and you, you should be very cautious in in how you're watching these superhero movies because I do think that they end up they're they're no different than the gods of the Greece, you know. I mean, think right. about it. They're very very similar. A lot of Greeks didn't believe in those gods. They just used them as the ways to the spiritual way to explain their reality, their truth. And so that's what the modern day is doing as well. And that's why I think they're they're dangerous. Um uh,
0: you have uh is it a book or is it a uh online course about movies and
1: I do. I do. I have a book called Hollywood Worldviews, which is a classic. Um and it's it, it's a really great way to help religious people to watch movies more discerningly. Not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, I, I'm right. not one of those guys that says, oh, those sex and violence, don't watch anything. Don't watch R, R, don't watch R-rated movies. But, you know, you do need to be... I think that the worldview is far more in, influential. And there's more good in movies, I think, than what some Christians like to say. And then some, some Christians are so thoughtless that they're consuming a lot of bad stuff with the good too so it's trying to help them to to watch movies more intelligently but then on my website go to the store on my website gadawa.com and you will you'll see that the course there's a a whole course online course that I've developed that with movie clips and everything and it's people love it because it's video you get to see examples of movies and and all that
0: i think it's a good way to reach our culture that is so geared towards entertainment when you know, a big hot movie comes up and then, yeah, and everybody knows, everybody's seen it, everybody's talking about it, and you can take bits and pieces of it and use that as a segue to get back to the more important things like the gospel message. Exactly.
1: So, yeah, I got a lot of stuff on that website. Um, you know, my big thing is I love movies. And uh, so I got a lot of stuff for movies, but also all my novels and theology. And I like to write theological novels. And, and so and I try, I try to make it solidly. I have a high regard for scripture. But I also love the imagination, and I believe God God wants us to use our imagination to to, uh, express his glory, and so I do that in my novels as well.
0: Yeah, you'd mentioned the Chronicles of the Nephilim, Chronicles of the Watchers, Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Where does your book about the Emperor of China fit in?
1: That will be in the Chronicles of the Watchers, but I have recently... I have uh, pulled that from publication because I'm going to re-release it with a new title. And the th- it, it used to be it used to be called The Dragon King, but um, wait a bit because I'm going to I'm not going to make any big changes to it. But it's going to have a new title, new cover called Chin, Dragon Emperor of China, and it's going to be book two in the Chronicles of the Watchers. The first book coming out, which is going to come out in the next couple of months, is Jezebel. And this is the notion of what we've been talking or what I've, we've hinted at, which is the notion of of that there are watchers over n- nations, including pagan nations. And how does that look? What does that look like in the spiritual realm? And the belief was this, the belief in the Hebrew Bible, as well as the ancient world, was that the heavens and the earth were, were intimately linked and and, and that the... And they, they it had a very hierarchical understanding, right? So they, they elevated those in authority. They, those in authority had a lot of power. It still do today, I know. But I'm just saying they, they had a real notion that the, the authorities ruled because, of course, you had kings and stuff, right? And they, the belief was, was that behind the earthly authorities, there were heavenly authorities. And these were often expressed as connection, connected to the stars, right? Right. And so, so the belief was that if there was a war going on on earth, there was also a war in heaven. Uh, and the Bible even talks about this sometimes, like uh, when Sisera uh, and his chariots uh, were destroyed by, I can't remember if it was Israel or, or Judah, talks about how the stars fought from heaven, the kings fought with each other. And so, in other words, the belief was that heaven and earth were linked, and so whatever happened on Earth in terms of the earthly authorities there were heavenly authorities well that's why that's where you get in bat in Daniel like I said you know Daniel 9 is it I can't remember but where Daniel talks about these watches you know Persia Prince of Persia I battled with the Prince of Persia for so many days well that's a reference to the his what was going on historically as well and so um, that was their belief and so I'm bringing that to life in the Chronicles of the Watchers, I'm trying to show, well, what, the, what, what, what what might that look like? Where I try to be historically accurate, but I also integrate the spiritual view. Right. Um, but that's also what I did with Chronicles of the Apocalypse and Chronicles of the Nephilim. So it's very much a continuity between all the series. You know, If you want to start at the beginning, start with Noah Primeval. But if you want to jump to uh, the, uh, uh, the first century and the beginning of the church, go to uh, Tyrant, Rise of the Beast. That talks about... Nero, Caesar, persecuting Christians and the start of the Christian church and how that was all connected to the book of Revelation. Because, of course, John was writing Revelation under Nero's reign. And, you know, how, how did the Christians understand Revelation in their time period? You know, we always have People, everyone assumes like, oh, Revelation is about us now. But how might the Christians have understood it in their time period? That's what the Chronicles of the Apocalypse uh, shows. And I, I talk about all that stuff in there. And, yeah, and I actually now that...
0: have a couple of uh, podcast episodes where I talk about how one's interpretation of end times can affect their interpretation of Genesis and vice versa. Yeah, so sure. I know you've done a lot of writing and stuff and uh, have a lot of YouTube videos and everything on Uh, end times interpretations and stuff. So I'm I'm probably going to do an episode on that when I get finished with all of the stuff I want to cover on Genesis.
1: Let's do it, man.
0: Yeah, I think that would be very, very fun. uh, I lean partial preterist myself, so. Oh, good. Well, you would love
1: my stuff then. So yeah, and look, people with end times beliefs these days, it's really sad to me. We're becoming so polarized. There's just an inability on so many Christians' part to be able to uh, just have interaction with other views and they just label them heretical and preterism is a minority view and, and more and more scholars are holding to it, but, and it's a growing belief, but it, it, you know, there's so many Christians who are in the dominant view that just, Oh, that's heretical. That's heretical because it doesn't agree with them. Right. And this is really sad because we've got a lot to learn from each other. And let me tell you, there's a lot of fascinating powerful historical truth that preterists bring to the table that people just don't they just don't get otherwise and yeah i I need to understand
0: it a little bit more yeah but that's that's the whole purpose of the podcast and kind of my tagline is to turn confrontation into conversation and right now we have so much polarization and Every position is against some other position. Yes. If you're against it, you're not going to learn from it. You're not going to learn why other people believe what they do. And that's what I'm trying to bring to the podcast here is a different approach to talking about creation and other conflicts within the church. So that is I really, so really appreciate you coming on and I look forward to having you back. I think that I, I think Likewise. we share a lot of things in common that I didn't before. look, if we before. don't...
1: If we don't, that's okay, too. You know, it's like, like you said, we need to just be able to have dialogue and it's okay to disagree. You know, oh, I have a different view, you know, rather than you're a heretic, <laughs> right? I mean, this is getting out of control, you know, and especially in today's world where we've already got political extremism and turmoil just growing. And it's like you would, I would hope that the body of Christ would at least show the grace that is lacking in the broader world at large. And this has got to overcome this, you know?
0: He said that people would know we're his disciples, that we're actually following him by our love, not by how strongly we hold dogmatically to some opinion, you know, and how strong we're willing to fight against some other.
1: Daniel, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Let's let's
0: do it again soon. I'll, I'll contact you in the future for sure. Will do. Thanks again, Brian. I hope you had as much fun in that interview as I did. I kind of wish that our wives had left the two of us in a coffee shop while they got lost in Hobby Lobby, and we just spent a couple of hours talking about all of this stuff. I kind of felt like I made a new friend there, and I'm really looking forward to having Brian back. We're going to be doing an episode on spiritual beings as we get into Genesis 6. That's going to be in a few weeks, and we'll also have him back to talk about his book Jezebel when it comes out, and about the idea of the Watchers as earthly powers during the time of Genesis. And finally, because we touched on it a little bit in this episode, and because I mentioned this when I talked about the doctrines that impact our view of Genesis and how our view of Genesis impacts certain doctrines, he will be coming back as well to talk about end times and the view of the Preterists and partial Preterists. Also, I'm really excited to announce that when we get into Genesis 3, that I'll be having an interview with Michael S. Heiser, who we've mentioned a few times on this podcast about the serpent in the garden and whether that was a talking snake or whether that was some kind of spiritual being and exactly what it was and what it wasn't as it relates to the Hebrew word that's used there as well as the cultural significance and cultural history of the serpent and the spiritual beings that might be represented in scripture as a serpent. So I'm really looking forward to that. And finally, I really encourage you to go to godawa.com. I'll put the links in the show notes and on the webpage, but go and download a free copy of his Noah Primeval book and spend a couple of hours reading through the appendices and addendums in that book because you'll receive a lot of really good non-fiction information about the worldview of the Hebrews, which was really the whole purpose of this podcast. Next week, we'll be having an interview with the president of the DC chapter of the American Scientific Association, Mike Biedler. He is a friend of mine that I have known online for at least a decade, and we will be discussing the things in Genesis 1, as well as a few other references that indicate a functional, purpose-driven focus of the account, as well as the correlation that the ancient Hebrews would have had to the creation story as it related to temple preparation and temple dedication and a view that is becoming more and more popular of Genesis 1 referencing a cosmic temple. So join us next week as we have yet another guest and as usual go to the website and check out all the resources that we have listed here as well as the show notes that are attached. Thanks for listening to another episode of Creation and Conflict podcast, where our goal is to turn confrontation into conversation.